I'll ask you please to turn now to Psalm 119 and verse 49. Psalm 119 and verse 49. I'll read this section, verse 49 to verse 56. Remember the word to your servant upon which you have caused me to hope. This is my comfort in my affliction, for your word has given me life. The proud have me in great derision, yet I do not turn aside from your law. I remembered your judgments of old, O Lord, and have comforted myself. Indignation has taken hold of me because of the wicked who forsake your law. Your statutes have been my songs in the house of my pilgrimage. I remember your name in the night, O Lord, and I keep your law. This has become mine because I keep your precepts. Let's briefly pray once again. Lord, your word gives us reason to hope, to hope even now that you will be the God who draws near to us from on high, to instruct us, to bless us, to help us, to teach us, to do us the good that only you can do. Lord, speak to us that we might hear your word in those golden heavenly tones. For Jesus Christ's sake we pray. Amen. Amen. It may seem a strange question to ask given the last five minutes, but do you sing? How much do you sing? How often do you sing? What do you sing? Songs have a peculiar power, don't they? They dig into our minds, our memories, very quickly and very easily. When we can't remember words, we can remember, uh, or prose at least, we can remember poetry. There's something about rhythm and rhyme of ideas as much as words that drive these things not just into our minds but down into our very souls. So how often do you sing and what is the substance of your song? Did you sing this morning as part of your private devotions before you came to church? Did you sing in the car on the way to worship? Will you, you sing at some other points today? When you sing here in the church building, are we singing thoughtfully? Are we singing responsively? Are we making a distinction between Psalm 6, gently, gently lay your rod on my sinful head, O God, and the hymn that we've just sing, praising the wisdom and the power and the glory and the goodness of the God of our salvation? Are you just learning to sing as a Christian? Perhaps you've not long been converted and you're just figuring out the kind of tunes that we use and the kind of words that we sing. Have you been brought up on a heritage of the great hymns and psalms that have been passed down from generations so that your soul is stocked with good things so that you can almost press a button and the words will come pouring out? A lot of people sing... People were singing a lot yesterday, singing in football stadiums. People sing at concerts. People sing because their favourite songs come on the radio. 
Some of the songs are pretty empty, vacuous, vain. Some of them are vile, foul, utterly foolish. The world's songs don't feed our souls, even when they're not dragging us down. David was a singer. He was the sweet singer of Israel. David was a man skilled in musical instruments. In fact, uh, there's a complaint uh, at another time that uh, the people of God are, are doing what David did and they're, they're multiplying their musical instruments when they should have been doing even more substantial things. And David sings because he's in trouble. We saw something of that in Psalm 6. We see a, a different note to his songs here in Psalm 119. Notice that in verse 53, he's facing great troubles. Indignation has taken hold of me because of the wicked who forsake your law. When David looks around him in this world, both near and far, he sees a world that is full of transgression, full of wickedness, full of resentment and indignation against God, the forsaking of the divine law. He sees sin on every hand, and indignation grips his soul, righteous indignation, grief, sorrow, distress, a holy resentment that God should be so dis, dis, diminished and, and, and derided in this world. And against those great troubles, he sets great comforts. Your statutes have been my songs in the house of my pilgrimage. This is the counterpoint to David's grief. Your statutes have been my songs in the house of my pilgrimage. Spurgeon says that when religion is set to music, it goes well. When religion is set to music, it goes well. When the wicked are forsaking God's law, the righteous are singing it. Your statutes have been my songs in the house of my pilgrimage. So learn from David, first of all, the circumstances that we are in. The circumstances that we are in. The house of my pilgrimage. Now David is conscious, not just in Psalm 119, but it's, it's plain here, that he is, as he says in verse 19, a stranger in the earth. That language that we, we took at the beginning of our service from Hebrews chapter 11 of the faithful uh, from uh, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and those who went before them who knew that they were strangers in the earth, that they were pilgrims or sojourners, temporary residents. That's the, the overarching sense that David has of his existence here. He's in the house of his pilgrimage a temporary dwelling as he journeys through this world. It may be that he's talking about his body. This is the house of my pilgrimage. It may be that he's talking about his palace. Is that how you'd talk about a palace or a mansion if you had one? Well, this is, this is no more than a tent to me. It's the house of my pilgrimage. It may be a general declaration or reflection of the fact that this is not his home. His present life with its pressing troubles. David, like his fathers in the faith before him, is in the house of his pilgrimage. He knows then 
that this world is not where he is at home. It's not his permanent dwelling place. There's a very real sense in which it is not where he belongs, at least in its present form and its present state. There's that grief. Indignation has taken hold of me because of the wicked who forsake your law. How, says David, how can I be at home in a world that is so opposed to the God that I love? How can I take my ease in such an environment? It's not where I have most friends. Some of you will go home for Christmas. And some of you will go home with great delight and relish because there'll be family members that you haven't seen for a long time. Perhaps there'll be friends that you meet up with over the Christmas break that you've not seen for a long time. And it's perhaps that sense of going home. That's where my friends are. That's where my my kindred dwell, my family dwells, to use the old language. Brothers and sisters, as your years pass and as the days roll on, don't you find that not just in general, but very specifically, more and more of your friends are waiting somewhere else for you? Brothers and sisters who've gone before, men and women that you've known and esteemed because of their faith in Jesus Christ, and they're not here. If the Lord spares some of us who are younger and stronger, as we imagine ourselves to be, in 10 or 15 years' time, won't there be a larger roll call of those who've gone before? And the love that we've sustained now, that will be attracting us heavenward because our Christ will be there. Our brothers and sisters, our spiritual family members will be there. And across the world... God is gathering in his people, and they are all there. We're going to sit down with whom? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob at the feast. I mean, aren't most of your friends already there? People perhaps that you've walked with in your Christian life, examples and instructions that you've received, and you feel like you know these people. Don't you feel like you know Peter? You know Paul? that you know Moses, you know, you've seen the, me- the men's lives. You've, you've seen the grief of a Hannah and the joy of a Mary you've entered in. Don't you know Jesus Christ above all? Don't you now appreciate communion with him? And will you not soon see him where he is? But he is there physically, though with us in spirit. This is not where I have my friends I'm in the house of my pilgrimage. It's not where we're most esteemed. If you're a Christian, then the world thinks you're a weirdo. I mean, they might put up with you. They might appreciate some of you. They might think you're quite kind and quite nice, a reasonable neighbour. At least you're polite and friendly. Children may be reasonably well-behaved and so on and so forth. But I mean, that religion stuff, that church-going... That commitment to truth at all costs, that desire for righteousness, that pursuit of justice, that holding to faithfulness, that display of mercy when it doesn't suit you, when it does you harm. I mean, you could be so much wealthier if you'd walked the way we walk. You you wouldn't have been taken advantage of. You'd have more time. You'd have a proper weekend. The world thinks that God's people 
our curiosities. And the more distinctively heavenly-minded we are, the more the worldly think we are curious. We stand apart. This is not the place where we expect respect, esteem and applause. In fact, we're grateful when the world does not turn its guns against us, when the world does not disdain and trample upon us. This is not where I will stay very long. Days passing swifter than a weaver's shuttle. We've said in our adult Bible class, time is precious because it's finite, because it's uncertain. How many more breaths will you draw? How many more years do you have? How many more Christmases will you celebrate? How many more ticks of the clock? You can count them. You know, we talk about millions and billions. We're all right with that when it comes to money. What about seconds? <laughs> How much longer do we have? Well, not long. But this is the house of my pilgrimage. This isn't the harbour. This is the journey. I'm not expecting to drop anchor here. This is not where I make my investments. This is not where I've stored up my treasures. And it's not where I can rest. Do you ever long for rest? Ever long for the battles to be over? For the sorrows to pass? For the griefs and the distresses to be taken away? For the afflictions and the pains to cease? And it seems for some perhaps that over the course of time those accumulate. Don't know how many people would say they have diminished. But it's all right. It's the house of my pilgrimage. This isn't home. Our life here, brothers and sisters, is not permanent. It's the present reality and it presses in upon us. But it's not the permanent reality. That's relief. This, this isn't as good as it gets. But it's also a challenge because this is where we are where indignation takes hold of us because of the wicked who forsake God's law. Now, brothers and sisters, do you feel this? Do you stop to think about the fact that this is the house of your pilgrimage? There may be some of you here this morning who live here as this is the be-all and end-all. This is everything to you, and you cling to it, you want to accumulate in it. It's a challenge, isn't it? Because this world, this here and now, demands so much of us. But you're trying to settle here, perhaps. You think you're satisfied here. You've got that list of things, maybe not written on paper, but in your mind, if only, then you'd be happy. If only I were a bit more popular, if only I were a bit healthier, if only I were a bit more attractive, if only I were a bit wealthier. I, everything would be okay and the thoughts and the appetites and the expectations are all in the here and now if I could just have enough of this then I'd be quite happy here well two things first you'll never have enough and secondly even if you thought you did you'd find that it didn't make you happy Christian doesn't that thinking creep in even with you could happen, couldn't it, for Christmas? 
Oh, I know what I'm getting, or I hope I know what I'm getting. If I get that, I'll be fine. Do you begin to cling to things here? See, the world bins this into us, doesn't it? This life is everything. The stuff of this life is everything. And we can get a little fixated on the things of this world. We stop fixing our minds and our hearts on things which are above where Christ is. We drop our gaze and that apostolic vision where we say it's not the things which are seen that govern us, but the things which are unseen. It's not the things that I can hold here, but the things that my faith lays hold upon. That's what really matters. That's what's really precious. And whether it's because of the season of life, maybe it's because of the season of year, maybe it's because of the passage of your time at this point, your present circumstances, your particular needs, the people that you're influenced by, the particular desires that you have. Some of you boys and girls who are thinking about universities, as if the university you go to will determine everything that the future holds. Your college course, that's the be-all and the end-all. Get the right degree, get the right qualification, get the right job. What's it telling you? Here, now, only, all, this. And David, the man after God's own heart, the king in Israel, looking at his circumstances in their heights, and in their depths, this is the house of my pilgrimage. My friends, is your heart set on Christ? Have you left this world with all its passing joys and its empty toys fundamentally behind? Are you a citizen of heaven? That's the New Testament language that David is reflecting here. This is the place that I'm passing through. That is the place where I belong. My Saviour will come for me. My Christ will return for me. That this present body is going to be transformed at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. That I'm going to see him and I will enter eternity. Time stops making sense when you think of eternity. I can't even tell you that's time and that's eternity because eternity doesn't have beginnings and endings. But that's home, in the presence of God, where Christ is. Bliss untold, beauty and glory, immeasurable and unimaginable for the human mind. And that, my friend, that's the circumstances that you're in if you're a child of God. You're in the house of your pilgrimage. What truth have you received as you make your way through this world? Your statutes have been my songs in the house of my pilgrimage. Remember, I am a stranger in the earth. Do not hide your commandments from me. This is David's delight. Into the noise, into the clamour, into the terrifying silence of this present evil age, a voice has broken. God is not silent the word of God has come to his people from heaven. Think of it. Think what it would be like to live if God had not spoken. It's chilling. It's terrifying. How could you know God if God had not made himself known? How would you know who you are and what you're for 
and how you might pursue that if God had not spoken. But you have the statutes of the Lord. You have the judgments of God. You have the law. You have the precepts. You have the revelation that God has made of himself. And it has come to its brightest and highest expression in the person of Jesus Christ. Do you want to know God? Then you look at God as he makes himself known in Christ. And that truth has come to us in the word of God. This is where we are made wise for salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. This is where we're instructed and guided so that we might become complete men and women of God. These statutes, this revelation, this word from heaven is indeed heavenly. It's of a different character altogether of the things that you will hear in this world. It is bright and clear. Your father has spoken from home. Think if you'd never heard a voice of love all your days. And now a voice of heavenly love speaks to you. Calls you and brings you home. Divine truth has come into this dark world. The God who made all things and sustains all things, the God against whom we by nature have rebelled, has spoken his truth to you. It is heavenly, not worldly. And therefore it is stable. It is unchanging. It is reliable. When God speaks, you don't need to guess. When God speaks, you don't need to adapt. When God speaks, you don't need to develop. Here is the anchor for our faith. Here is the touchstone of all truth. Sometimes people use the phrase, the norming norm. Sounds good, what does it mean? Well, maybe it doesn't sound good to you, but the norming norm. This is the standard by which all other standards can be judged. This is the straight edge against which you can measure everything else. When the eternal God has spoken, you can rely upon it absolutely. Can anyone here say that of anything else? Can you say it of your own speech? You might say it my best. I have to put a God willing over things. Even when I'm, I'm making my plans, even when I'm working out how to use my time and my energy as we've been looking at in the adult Bible class, I have to say, God willing, and say there could be providential hindrances. Even when you say, see you next week. Are you sure? See you tomorrow. Are you confident? But God's words do not fall to the ground. Everything he has spoken can be utterly relied upon. And how comforting then these statutes are. Because they speak to our circumstances. They're real. They're applicable. They come close. They do us good. God knows that we're in the house of our pilgrimage. And the Lord's word is such as guides and sustains us along the way. What is it that lifts up your heart when you're downcast? Isn't it the truth of God? When you really want to do good to one of your brothers and sisters, where do you turn? I'm sure there's something in the Psalms. I'm sure there's something in the Gospels. Isn't there that verse in Romans? Isn't there that text in Revelation? 
If I really want to anchor the soul of my brother, my sister, my friend in their trouble, isn't it God's truth that I reach for? Isn't this what raises our eyes when everything's dragging us down and when we're being beaten low and our, our faces are in the dust? Oh Lord, revive me. My soul clings to the dust, says David elsewhere in this psalm. Revive me. How? By what standard? With what means? According to your word. This is what I need to know. This is what I need to see. This is where I need to look. These are the truths upon which I need to rest. The statutes of God are instructive. How will you navigate this fallen world? How will you not fall into its various traps and snares? It is the word of God that gives you wisdom. Wisdom to walk according to God's ways. How will you avoid the dangers that you cannot overcome? How will you face the dangers that you have to address? How will you keep right when everyone's sending you wrong? How will you know the path to walk on where there are a thousand signposts pointing you in different directions? How will you hold to the right way when all the bells and whistles and the attractions and delights of the world are enticing you off the right path? Your statutes in the house of my pilgrimage. Then these words are compelling. Do any of you read poetry? I like poetry. Perhaps you read news stories and they're gripping. Perhaps you, you read history and you can sink into a different time and place. But is there anything that's as properly gripping, compelling and potent as the word of the living God? This is a different word altogether. This is a different book altogether. This is where the Holy Spirit is at work to, to grip our souls, to, to lock in our gaze, to feed our hearts. This is where we are convinced of our sin. This is where we see the beauty and the glory of the Lord. This is where reality really comes home to us. This is the book when we look at the world through the lenses of the truth, we begin to see things as they really are. This is the book that draws us heavenward. This is the book which tells us what really matters and that attracts us and entices us and delights us, that draws our future in the bright, true colours of the word that God has spoken so that you know what lies ahead. And rather than being drawn aside, you drive forwards because you can see the glory that lies in the future. This is clean. Do you ever hear words that sicken your soul? I hope it's a sign that you're growing up as a Christian. Perhaps you flick on a television programme. Or somebody says, oh yeah, let's watch a film. Or you've got to read this book. And within a few moments you're going, I just don't want this. I don't like this. My friends, even the things that used to be so-called entertainment, the ugliness of the so-called entertainment is now coming in very close. Even the, 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 the chat shows and the news reports, these things with their vileness and their ugliness, 
Now, God's word does not shy away from those things, but it does bring an antidote to us. And when you're mucked up and covered with the filth, when the world's uglinesses have clogged the pipes of your spiritual system, you can stop and you can read. And the clean truths of the word of God will flush out your soul. This is not a spring water that you need to filter first. You don't need to boil it. You don't need to drop a pill in to get rid of the, the bacteria. You can come and drink of the pure waters of God's truth. Nothing to clog you up. Nothing to besmirch you. And it's stirring. It's full of examples. David. Daniel. Moses. Abraham. Paul. Peter. Timothy, Titus, Rachel, Sarah, Hannah. You look at these men and women, you look at the faith, you look at the, the conviction, you look at the way that God spoke and they obeyed, how sometimes they stumbled or struggled, but the Lord sustained them, lifted them up, carried them on. This book is full of example for you, full of warning to you, full of exhortation for you that when your hands hang down and your knees become feeble, here's a word that, like a cold shower in the morning, which is delightful. Some of you may not agree, but you know, sometimes you go out and it's, it's something that is bracing. Here's a cold draft of water for your soul to, to establish you, to stir you once again. My friends, in the house of your pilgrimage, God has spoken. And he's spoken with a voice of love. And such is the infinite love of the infinite God in all his wisdom and goodness that you can discern in that voice of love all the tones, all the pitch, all the pace, all the colour that you will need as his child walking on your way to glory. Here you find the Father's assurances. Here you find your Lord's commands. Here you find your Saviour's acts. Here you find your friend's promises. Here you find your guide's direction. The word of God is no burden to a child of God. It's his blessing. How I love your law, says David. It is my meditation all the day. We think of that extensively. When God has spoken... When the God of heaven has spoken to his creatures, heavenly words, stable, certain words, comforting, instructive, compelling, clean and stirring. My friends, in the house of our pilgrimage, we have the statutes of God. And they have been our songs. Not just the circumstances we're in, not just the truth we have, but the songs that we sing. This is not about making things bearable. This is about things being delightful. I'm not saying that there are not proper seasons and opportunities for lament. And in some senses, when we sang from Psalm 6, there was a measure of lament in that. But did you notice how even in our version of Psalm 6, the hymn writer, the, the paraphrased, he brought things to bear from the end of that. Look, he comes, he heeds my plea. Look, he comes, the shadows flee. Glory round me dawns once more. Rise my spirit and adore. Here is the antidote. 
Yes, O God, your rod has been laid upon me. Yes, my enemies are round about me. Yes, my frailties are pressing in upon me. Yes, there is distress and there is confusion. But look, God is coming. So much so, I'm almost tempted to say, let's stop after three verses. Let's find a different tune. We've lamented, but God is coming. God has made his promises. And my friends, the words of God is full of these rich consolations, indications of joy. And David says, I have set the songs which are grounded in your statutes against the sorrows of the way. Brothers and sisters, our joys ought to be echoes of God's truth. How will we lift up our hearts? How did our Lord Jesus lift up his heart? Do you remember what had happened when they were there at that last Passover, the first Lord's Supper? When our Lord is looking forwards to his death upon the cross, Gethsemane looms. The shadows of Golgotha are drawing nearer. This is my body, broken for you. This is my blood, the blood of the new covenant which is shed for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Judas, what you have to do, do quickly. Peter, I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Where did our Lord derive the strength to stand and to walk out to the Mount of Olives to be betrayed, to be abandoned, to be captured, to be beaten, to be crucified and to die? He sang a hymn when Paul and Silas were in prison in Philippi. It was the middle of the night. Their legs were in the stocks. They were being tortured. It wasn't just uncomfortable. They were in a prison cell that was designed to pull their legs almost out of joint. What did they do? They were singing. They were praising God. You think of the Covenanters, Scots Christians persecuted in previous generations. What would you hear if you were walking in the glens and the dales, you'd hear the sounds of their psalmody rising up to heaven as they praise the God of their salvation. What do you sing? Do you sing what faith hears and what faith sees? Do our songs respond to circumstances with confidence and cheerfulness? Sometimes you just sing. And there are cheerful and joyful songs, and, and the world's got some that you might sing. Do they last? When the party's over and the music stops, is anything left, anything substantial, anything worthwhile? Are we perhaps too much in the habit of making hymnody and psalmody our background music? God has spoken. If we're singing his truth back to him, don't you think we should pay more attention to it? The gospel, my friends, is not Muzak. 
The gospel's not elevator tunes. It's not the stuff that just tickles your ears while you're in the shops that's designed to keep you there longer or promote you. Yeah, actually, the music you hear when you're shopping is designed to break down your resistance to not buying something. Even they know that music is effective. What about the songs of your pilgrimage? Do they reflect the statutes of your God? He has spoken to us. When we sing in church, are we thinking about what we're singing? I think most of the people who, who preach here would tell you that sometimes choosing the hymns takes almost as long as preparing the sermon. Because you want the hymns and the psalms that echo and confirm and establish and communicate. Do you take these sheets home? Do you sing them during the week? Have you got some of the good old hymn books? Do you sing in family worship? Do you sing in a private devotion? Do you ever sing when you get together as God's people? Do you put some music on in the car? Not just as background. Do you sing as you go? When you're distressed, when you're confused, when you're joyful, <clears throat> what do you set against your sorrows and how do you express your happinesses? Your statutes have been my songs in the house of my pilgrimage. What we sing as Christians should lift our eyes and our hearts as we travel. Maybe that should raise the question of what we listen to and what we know. There'll be lots of singing over the next few weeks. Some of you will have to sing the same things over and over and over again. What about letting that truth sink into your soul? Incarnation hymns that speak of the coming of God into the world. It can become wearying, can't it? It can become so formulaic. It can become so ordinary. In fact, even, there are even what's, what's, the, uh, what's the hymn that everybody's meant to avoid? Uh, is, it, oh, is, it, is it Hallelujah Chorus or something? Hark the Herald. You know, there's a competition with rules that, that you have to be the last person who hears Hark the Herald Angels sing in the Christmas period. Um, Whamageddon, you heard of Whamageddon? Last Christmas I gave you my heart by Wham. Apparently there was, a, there was a, a, a DJ in a football stadium who played that song to a crowd of 8,000 people and they've never had so many complaints because the competition is that you leave it to as latest as possible before you have to listen to Wham singing Last Christmas I gave you my heart. Even the world gets fed up of its Christmas songs. Have you thought about what we sing? When we turn to our closing hymn, there's a danger in familiarity, isn't there? There are some things. Amazing grace. Yeah, we all know it. That saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. It was grace at all. You can do that without thinking. How can you do that without thinking? Gently. Gently lay your rod on my sinful head, O God. Stay your wrath in mercy, stay, lest I sink before its sway.
Do you feel the weight of those words? I sing the almighty power of God that made the mountains rise, that spread the flowing seas abroad and built the lofty skies. If you're going to sing the almighty power of God, if you're going to sing the wisdom that ordained the sun to rule the day, the goodness of the Lord who filled the earth with food, shouldn't that have an impact upon your soul? Shouldn't that make a difference to the way that you think and feel and act afterwards? I think it was Luther when he was being particularly bruised and battered, turned to his dearest friend, Philip Melanchthon. Let me make sure I'm going to give you the right quotation. I think it was the 46th. Yes, it was. Come, Melanchthon, let us sing the 46th together. The which? God is our refuge and our strength, a very present aid. And therefore, though the earth removes, we will not be afraid. Though hills amid the seas be cast, though foaming waters roar, yea, though the mighty billows shake the mountains on the... That's not what it says, but those are the words, aren't they? That's the music. That's the tune. That's the truth that carries our souls. How much of heavenly holiness and happiness is there in our songs? Now, you might not be able to sing very well or not sing very much. A few weeks ago, lots of us were croaking away. I could barely talk, but I can mouth. I can stand, I can mouth the truth that my throat can't produce. There'll be times when you'll sing through your tears. And there'll be tears of distress and grief. Or there might be tears of joy and delight. There'll be things that we should sing today that will express the delights and the joys of our hearts. And they ought to be echoes of the truth of God. This is the exhortation and encouragement of the New Testament that we're singing God's truth back to him in praise and we're singing God's truth out to one another. You know that when you sing, you're singing to each other. You're admonishing one another. We're telling one another, listen to what God has said. Listen to the truth of God's salvation. Brothers and sisters, we're in the house of our pilgrimage Pilgrims need their songs. Your ears may be going. Your voice may be going. You may not have a musical bone in your body. But there are means that you can use. There are tools that are available. There are perhaps, for some of you who are older, the memories of hymns that you've heard and sung through all your life. There's perhaps that hymn that you remember singing the day you were converted. There's the hymn that you sang in church that day when you were so deep in your distresses and the Lord used it to lift you up. There's the psalm that you sang at your friend's funeral. Can you not go back to those things and sing over again the songs of God's statutes in the house of your pilgrimage? When Israel went up to Jerusalem to worship, they had a whole hymn book within their hymn book, the Songs of Ascents. Israel went home singing. Beloved friends, we should do the same still. Amen.